Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Live More, television show iZombie, and joining us for the discussion is first-time guest Kira Hunting. Welcome, Kira. Hi, thank you for having me. Very glad to have you on, and it's been something I should have done a long time ago. I know you from grad school, so I know, and and I know you were also in, interested in pop culture, so this is right up your alley. So it's kind of surprising we haven't had you on until now, and I'll just let the audience know right now that I am sneaking in a double recording with you, so we will have you on again in the next <laughs> few months, as well as this episode. I'm very excited about it. Now, we are talking about iZombie, which is a supernatural crime procedural that ran on the CW for five seasons from 2015 to 2019. It starred Rose uh, McIver as a Seattle police medical examiner who has been turned into a zombie, and she eats the brains of murder victims to stave off her zombie-ness. After eating the brains of a human, zombies get flashes of their memory, which helps Liv to then solve the crimes. Uh, Other recurring characters include Malcolm Goodwin as Detective Clive Babineau, Rahul Kohli uh, as Ravi Chakrabarty, Liv's boss in the medical examiner's office, Robert Buckley as Major Lillywhite, Liv's ex-fiancé, David Anders as Blaine McDonough, a drug dealer who now deals human brains to people who have been turned into zombies but want to maintain a semi-normal life. We're discussing the pilot episode, which was written by Rob Thomas and Diane Ruggiero-Wright and directed by Rob Thomas, and this originally aired on March 17th, 2015. Kira, do you remember when you first came to the TV show iZombie? So I remember the exact time is going to be tricky. I definitely watched the first season more or less when it came out on the CW. Mostly because I'm a CW junkie. Like I tend to at least try everything that comes out on that channel. And it was this great irony that I watched it and I loved it because typically I do not watch anything with zombies in it. Like I am legitimately phobic about zombies, but I zombie was this exception that just instantly spoke to me. I remember seeing it advertised. I must've been watching a CW show, maybe arrow. Was that would that, that was, would have been on at the same time uh, and seeing the commercials for it. And I remember being intrigued and also I was somewhat familiar with the comic book series, but I could tell this was a little different than the uh, comic book series that it was a kind of a loose adaptation of. Um, but I, I do often like procedural shows that give you some twist. So it's, you know, the, the murder of the week, but with something else that's driving the plot lines of this obviously is layering a lot of that, something else very front and heavy and calling the show. I zombie <laughs> and uh, having a, a lot of that, but I didn't get around to watching it until um at some point when it was on netflix within the last year um and um i I still haven't watched the entire series but i've made it through uh, a fair chunk um i found for me it's one of those shows that i can i can do for a while but then it just starts to feel gross because of all the brain eating (laughs) stuff and okay i i need need a little break from all the zombiness of i zombie and then i'll circle back and you know do another bunch of episodes um depending on what season you're in it seems like they uh they lean into the grotesque a little bit more than some other seasons yeah i was gonna say i feel like they actually did the brain eating pretty well as someone who's easily grossed out Mm -hmm. the fact that the brain eating at least for live mostly becomes like these different riffs on food as an expression of people's personality for people who don't watch the show every time she eats a brain she like cooks it into a thematic um dish like sushi or lunchable pizzas (laughs) and i thought that was really clever because it keeps you from focusing on sort of the ooey gooey part of brain eating and really ties it into the show's interest on like distinctive characterization in a stronger way by thinking about what kind of food is she going to match this brain to it's like the wine pairings of zombie land (laughs) <laughs> i like i like that way of putting it and it is interesting to see i I, th- I think it's not so much in the first season but like in the second season i think they lean into making it look like youtube uh 
uh, food prep videos with, you know, lots of overhead shots of, you know, the dicing of all the vegetables and then the dicing of the brain as well. But then suddenly it's like all together in the way of, you know, in the style of some of the YouTube food prep videos. Oh, yeah. And I think they change, they change like the speed of it a little bit as they go on. But there's a very distinctive style to those sequences that are one of the few things that stay consistent through the entire series. And I'll try really hard not to spoil future series to for anyone but that's that's like a a one consistent style point is the sound that they use and that sort of fast cuts for the food making sequences yeah um a little bit of trivia about the show so it is loosely based on a comic book that we noted um of with the same name that was written by chris roberson with art by mike allred and i think that uh, they may have been collaborating on the story as well but i think Roberson is credited as the writer and Allred as the author. And um, that was published by Vertigo Comics, which was at the time a kind of um, smaller uh, print run from DC Comics that would do some of their more mature comics or things that weren't in the superhero flavor of the traditional DC comics. You might find those over in what was Vertigo. There's been a lot of upheaval in the comic book publishing industry, and I don't think Vertigo exists at present. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it come back. It's had a kind of a 30 year run as a, as an imprint that put published some of the most influential and kind of groundbreaking comics. So it was a little sad when DC um, kind of shuttered that imprint. Uh, and I think iZombie was one of the last comics that they had put out under that label. Uh, it was developed by, for television by Rob Thomas and Diane Ruggiero Wright. And Rob Thomas is the creator of Veronica Mars, which we already covered uh, on this podcast in a much earlier episode. And I think there's definitely a little bit of crossover in terms of tone and content between iZombie and Veronica Mars, even though there's the clear distinction of, you know, supernatural zombie uh, situation on iZombie. But, the, you know, just the the feeling of kind of young adult angst and uh, m- procedural, you know, crime solving. Um, I, I think yeah. that definitely overlaps. And the ample snark, right? Like they find lots of opportunities to give Liv some of that. Not exactly bitter, but snarky outsider edge to her that Veronica has been in a more mature way to sort of fit the character being an actual adult. And later in the season, they really lean into the Veronica Mars connection. Kristen Bell does like a voiceover at one point in one episode. They have a lot they they have a lot of winks, a lot of winks and a nod to that history. I I think as a whole um iZombie feels um a little meta in in like there there is kind of a a hyper awareness of the generic conventions that they're playing with um and particularly as as i said like Liv gets uh flashbacks of the memory of each person that she eats but she also starts to develop some of their personalities so they can actually besides already blending the genre of um crime solving and the supernatural zombies um you can also start adding in some other genres with the personality quirks that she's going to take on from episode to episode and and so it does allow for something playful like you said a a kind of private eye voiceover version uh, of one episode and it doesn't feel like it's transgressing the norms of the series because the series has already established that from episode to episode our main character is going to take on a slightly different personality yeah there's a lot of opportunities for play and i think that Part of that has to do with it being on the CW and the CW in that moment where it was sort of trying to decide where it lived between kind of the teen YA drama stuff. And there's a whole episode of iZombie that's like clearly winking at the production history of some of the other CW shows. And it's also like moving into the comic book space and iZombie is kind of both, right? It's, it's like literally a comic book adaptation but it's also really wedded to that veronica mars history to this sort of female centric ya drama that the cw was primarily known for prior to the arrowverse and it's also the kind of series and 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 this is something i think the cw developed very well that would develop um maybe not the broadest fan base but would develop like a deeply devoted fan base so they could do some winks and nods to behind the scenes stuff uh aspects of the creator's life or creator's past works that shows that are seeking a much broader but shallower audience commitment maybe it, it wouldn't work as well 
Um, but yeah. by having that deeply devoted audience that's going to set up, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the fan wikis that are going to have extensive summaries of every episode and behind the scenes trivia and, and things like that. Um, that's going to be one of the primary fan bases that they're hoping to generate. I, I think it welcomes some of that, like you said, like this acknowledgement that Rob Thomas has this other property that many of you are probably already fans of. And here's a, one episode that's going to really lean into that. And it's definitely that Rob, Rob Thomas that brings you that audience. I was trying to think back to why would I have ever sat down in the first place to watch iZombie? Because again, like I have not seen an entire episode of The Walking Dead. I do not do zombies. I cannot do zombies. <laughs> and it was absolutely the Rob Thomas of it all. It was absolutely how much I liked his previous work that was like, okay, well, if he's doing it. I'm sure it's going to be not something that's going to terrify me and make me hide under the covers at night because you know the tone. And so he had a pretty strong and distinctive fan base going into it that clearly I think sets the type of audience that's going to be most devoted to the series to start with. And it's kind of interesting, just like you're acknowledging, like there is this zombie genre that we're all somewhat familiar with. And this represents, I think kind of a step for the zombie genre that is similar to what the vampires had, you know, for, for a longer period where their vampires start as something more grotesque and have kind of been humanized and romanticized. Um, but the zombies had still largely remained this kind of grotesque other. And through this series, which is going to have the classic CW romantic entanglements and um, lots of other tropes that we think of as more soapy elements um, layered in with the zombie. Like it, it's um, definitely moving the zombies into kind of like, the twilight version of vampires this is going to be uh you know a, a more uh humanized and potentially romantic uh you know version of zombies yeah i think that's definitely part of it i think it's even like more extreme of a shift than that so if you think about something like the vampire diaries it's building on the idea of the male vampire as at least somewhat of a siren that's like an even the scary vampire stuff mm -hmm. and it's sort of setting them up as an object of desire which isn't really exactly what Liv is in the series right it's not that she's undesirable but she's not set up as like the viewer's object of desire the same way that sort of the vampire mm -hmm. stuff does instead of sort of like evolving the zombie i think if it's almost I think I love it because it's an inversion of what zombie media is typically all about, with the exception of warm bodies, which they actually shout out to in the show. Like the zombie me, most zombie media is so much about like the loss of the self to what it is to be a zombie to become just hunger, and so much of what I zombie is is about like the expansion of the self of live becoming more aware of who she is, more aware of the feelings of the people around her, more aware of her community through the experience of being a zombie. So it's if most zombie media is about fear, iZombie is fundamentally about empathy in this really substantive way that to me is, is a much stronger rejection of what a typical zombie text is than the evolution of the vampires. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying about it developing empathy, but I think it, it then also always has like the tragedy of loss, like so much of her understanding is coming because she's experiencing life as someone who has had their life ended, um, you know, yeah. for, for, for this week. So um, even as she is, in some ways gaining empathy, uh, she also is going to be putting up some more barriers because she is getting so used to loss and, and so identified with loss. Yeah. And that's part of the why, though, right? It's the idea that you can't be more open to who you really are and you can't be more open to the consequences for those without you without sort of first having the breakdown of the facade right without first having the breakdown of the plan i mean that's why i think they start us in the first episode with Liv. it as like the resident in the hospital you see the person she was ever so briefly so you can get that dramatic break and so for those of you who don't watch the show she's this sort of uptight resident and then she goes to this party at the urging of her fiance and gets turned into a zombie and then basically 
goes into what's essentially a depression, right? Sits in front of the TV, doesn't do anything. Um, and so by having her start as so put together and so rigid, even if it's only for a moment before she turns into a zombie, you get to see the breakdown of that facade so much more strongly. And I think that's what makes it more effective when she starts to feel things again, when she starts to feel things again in this episode through being able to help somebody else in the, in this case by seeing visions of the murder victim and therefore like solve the murder, save other people at risk, help her brand new partner, Clive Babineau find, you know, a place for himself in the police department. All of those moments, even in the first episode are about like finding herself again through the relationship to others in a way that I think is really effective. And then, and then gets just kind of leveled up every other episode of the season. Okay. I love our discussion, but the, let's go ahead and do the quick summary of the pilot <laughs> before we keep uh, I going on that. any Oh further. gosh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. And I, I think I definitely steered us into this. And then I was like, Oh, we, we, we need to make sure we ground our audience a little bit more. Yeah, um, I was sorry before... to say things. I was like, this is going to make no sense if I don't have context. Oh, you're, you're, you're just fine. Uh, before we move on to that summary listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like us to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special monthly quick casts and also any patron who supports us with five dollars per month or more gets to choose a topic for us to discuss now on to the full summary of the pilot episode as we have now noted olivia moore is a hyper-focused medical student and she is one of those like very on the ball versions like everything is regimented and planned out she knows exactly where she needs to be every minute of the day another resident invites her to go to a party that's gonna be on a boat but she is not much of a party person however at the urging of her fiance to just go and have some fun and relax a little Liv does end up going the party turns violent though when a party goer starts to attack people on the boat Liv tries to make a run for it but then the next thing we know she is waking up the next morning, in a body bag at the edge of the lake. She has a scratch on her arm and a white streak in her hair. Five months later, Liv is very, very pale and now works at the morgue. Uh, her family is worried about her life choices, including changing jobs and breaking off her engagement. Her family thinks she may have PTSD from the boat party. At work, uh, Liv sneaks some of a murder victim's brains to go and eat. Her boss, Ravi, catches her but is delighted to find out that she's eating the brains. He explains his theory that the boat massacre was actually the start of a zombie outbreak. A new drug called Utopium was being sold at the party, and he thinks it somehow turned some users into zombies, and that she, uh, during the attack, um, also got zombified. She has a flashback remembering seeing someone dealing drugs before the chaos began on the boat. He grills Liv for information about her condition, and she reveals that food has lost all flavor unless she uses lots of very powerful hot sauce on it. Also, eating brains lets her keep her faculties and intelligence. The longer she goes without eating any, um, uh, w- without eating anything or any brains, rather, the more animal-like she becomes, more driven by this hunger. Detective Babineau arrives and he asks if they have found any clues about who this Jane Doe may be. Liv has a flash of memory and shares it with Babineau. He asks how she could know these details from the victim's life just from the body. And Ravi says Liv is a little bit psychic. Babineau takes Liv with him to go follow up on the leads, uh, which takes him to a local weatherman. When they tell him that the girl has been murdered, he reveals that her name was Tatiana and he knew her from an escort service. Following more leads, they meet Tatiana's friend, who only speaks Romanian. However, because of the brain eating, Liv now speaks Romanian too, and they get information about Tatiana's apartment. Going there, they find it ransacked. They discover Tatiana's phone, and it has a voicemail that indicates that Tatiana, Tatiana stole something from someone who was trying to get it back. At the police headquarters, Babineau is pulled from the case, and he's replaced by Detective Brat. Babineau and Liv still want to solve this case, though, and they eventually find Brat has tied up two of Tatiana's co-workers and is asking them about his missing ring and saying his wife's going to kill him if she finds out. Babineau chases Brat out of the house, and Liv tries to stop Brat, but Brat shoots her. Brat is driving away, but we now see that Liv is up on the roof of his car, and she punches through his windshield. The car crashes, and Liv is thrown far from it. She sits up, and she's in full zombie mode. But when Babineau arrives, she's able to calm down before she begins eating Brat's brains. And that establishes now our new status quo, that Liv and Babineau are going to be a crime-stopping duo. The end of the pilot. 
I think this series does a really good job of, in only a few minutes, establishing a version of who live more in that kind of pre-credits reality where she is the driven medical student who um, is moving towards marriage and certain stage of life. And then seeing a, we see her get zombified and we jump ahead five months and it feels so different. And it's not just in terms of the writing and the situation she finds herself in. It is uh, Rose McIver's like her, her physicality, the way that she's going to perform this role is very distinct between those two versions of Liv. And I, I think it's a strength of the series that they have a lead actress who can, um, in, in such a short amount of time, give you a, a, a character that you are identifying with and then give you a completely different version of that character. And you're feeling that disconnect between who these are, but it's still clearly the same person at the same time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think Rose McIver never really got the credit she deserved for her performance in that series. You see it in the first episode in all these really subtle ways, just even how much her character changes like zombie live changes in just that short pilot episode as she sort of starts to find a sense of purpose and a way another way of relating to people in that episode and then if you build on it with later episodes where she has these like dramatic total transformations i don't think that she was credited as much as she should have been for her performance and how much complexity and subtlety and variety she provided as well as the other cast i think part of what makes it work is even though you only get that couple minutes of pre-zombie live you have Peyton and the other characters setting up their expectations of how she's supposed to behave and that kind of fills in some of the gaps that we might not have from just a little peek into Liv's pre-zombie life yeah, and also um, shout out to the makeup <laughs> and and costuming division because she looks so physically different, and um, like the zombie live like you you have to wonder how everyone isn't like desperate to find out are you are you okay <laughs> right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's the expectation that she was just being read as like ultra goth depressed or something by everyone around her because there is this sense that like we've zoomed forward enough that people have given up on her and her family that her mom's basically given up on her that her best friend has basically given up on her so there's clearly like an assumption that people were concerned and they've just stopped because she hasn't been responsive but still yes when someone walks around like that and doesn't immediately keel over you start to have some questions but one thing that you said that I wanted to make sure uh, we gave proper to you is the idea of variety that um, Rose McIntyre is able to bring to this role. And within the premise of this series where we're going to have the murder of the week procedural side of it and then have the spine of the zombie apocalypse uh, being thwarted or her being turned back as like the long-term storyline, it's very different than a lot of procedurals. Now, one thing that I think audiences want to or have come to expect from procedurals whether they think of it like this explicitly or not is that each week you kind of get a dip into a subculture like this week it's going to be the skateboard subculture and this week it's going to be the stage magician subculture and you're just gonna go visit that for a week with your main characters being the through line um but what i zombie introduces is that your main character is going to be taking on aspects of those subcultures as she eats the brains and takes on the personality and gains some of the skills of the murder victims for about a week is about how long she has the memories right i'm trying to remember exactly if they how explicit they make it but it's usually about a week is that i don't think i don't think they get super explicit about it like it's usually more than one day Mm -hmm. that's generally clear and then sometimes they talk about it wearing off but there are multiple episodes in which she has to eat the brains more than once for various reasons so it's hard to pin down an exact timeline for um brain vision personality change honestly typically it's conveniently around the same time that the case is solved yeah (laughs) (laughs) so however long it takes to solve a case and a new murder victim is showing up in this precinct of seattle (laughs) yeah when they're when like their business has been finished somehow she magically more or less lets them go but yeah that's that's sort of the premise of it and i think what makes that interesting is in the typical crime procedural you're 
a looky-loo in a subculture. There's something like fetishizing and alienating about how you visit like skateboard subculture or magic subculture or whatever it is. And I think having Liv be transformed by these encounters with people's subcultures or people's psychologies, even when she hates it, even when everyone around her hates it, does something more than that. Like you can't stay entirely outside of the victims and the victims community's experiences because of the way that like live is aligned with them Mm -hmm. because of the way that live typically develops even for people she hates some kind of compassion or understanding of where they've come from by force essentially right because she can't help feel the feeling yeah it comes back to that idea of empathy being a little more rooted in this version of procedural than sometimes we see in other versions um where it is like you said always kind of an outsider who sometimes is commenting on subcultures that they are never going to be a participant in um as as they go through uh you know interviewing you know they're they're four suspects that are all parts of the same uh, part of the same subculture and you know we get these insights but often you know the cops are providing some commentary sometimes very snide or derisive commentary on the subculture that they're looking into the this one week because the murder victim happened to belong to that subculture but with iZombie it's it's a very different experience for the main character and therefore for the viewer um as we go through it and i think it's it's definitely a strength of the series that helps to differentiate it and it's something that they take um, kind of the absurdity, uh, the inherent absurdity of saying, well, like our, our main character is going to be a zombie. Uh, and and then they find uh, a way to twist it and make it deepen uh, some, some of the plot lines instead of just being, uh, you know, a, a hook to make this show stand out from other procedurals. They now are going to make it a feature that is very prominent from episode to episode and that um it is still going to be differentiating it but uh, but I, in this case i think this is you you've hooked onto one aspect of that that um really makes me appreciate more of what the show is is doing as it as it, it still engages with those tropes of the crime procedural genre yeah and i think it's really important that she's with the police but not of the police in the same way that some other series like the mentalist have tried to make the core of their uh, the core of their series be someone who works with the police but isn't like technically police so it lets her be more aligned with the victim than sort of the process of policing and I think that we can just spoil the pilot episode right yeah. we spoil it yeah, okay. um, I think the fact that the very first bad guy is the police is a police officer and I zombie is not for nothing Right, that there is always this tension between the police as an institution in iZombie and the goal of the police, which is to bring justice to the victims. And by really strongly aligning her with the victim, the series gets to have a lot more of that tension than a typical police procedural, which aligns you entirely with the cops yeah i I think that's um that's a good insight i I mean there are other versions of police procedurals where it's you know x and the cop so you know the writer and the cop in castle or the um uh, what is her profession in bones i can't remember but you know kind of a medical examiner you know or forensic anthropologist that's what it is forensic anthropologist (laughs) yeah and that's why i brought mentalist too Mm -hmm. because it's definitely a trope right um but in none of those cases can they align to the victim in the same way they they align to like interest in the storytelling they align in the mentalist to their own mission or their own concern but because Liv always has an experience of the victim what that means what happened to them becomes so much more heightened. It's not like the victim is just a plot device, which is what they typically are. So often you don't see the crime in a crime procedural. You only see the aftermath here. The victim becomes front and center again, because live experiences their hopes, their fears very often the moment of their death. And whenever she experiences the moment of their death, that's like a particularly strong emotional experience for her. So I think that's just a very different 
wait for the experiences of the victim and how they got to where they were. The only instance of uh cops uh not behaving as cops should uh though in, in some future episodes it will be uh the zombie infestation hits hits some of the police department as well um which is one of those twists uh simultaneously feels inevitable with when you're combining a zombie apocalypse with a police procedural uh make it uh work uh, again to yeah. uh, k- kind of uh expand the universe of uh, that they're building an eye zombie. Yeah. And that's also a little bit sort of like the the challenge that eye zombie, and as you brought up before, some of the vampire shows are dealing with is like, what is the place of otherness and normalness in society and in adolescence? And by like increasing zombie infestation, we kind of have that question over and over again. Like, what does it mean to be a zombie? in society, in the police, how can that power be used for good? How can that power be used for evil? Just the same way that like, if you watch enough of any of those CW supernatural shows, like the vampire diaries, people or, or don't even jumping back further to like angel. Right. And... Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't stay human very long or Buffy <laughs> in, in teen supernatural series. You can only have like so many humans mm-hmm. in the cast for more than a season at a time. Right. Um, what do you think it is about Liv that makes her stand out besides the narrative flexibility uh, that, that we're going to see her, uh, you know, uh, we're going to be able to enjoy the actress playing different different characteristics of people, sometimes ones that I, I do enjoy the episodes where like uh, a character or brain she it was just a really rude person. So like she's like sniping at everyone and she's like, I'm sorry, it's the brain I'm on. But then she also still just keeps doing it uh, throughout throughout the episode. So there's um, some fun to be had there. But what is that at the core of Liv that makes her work as a protagonist besides that? Like, like for me, that that transition from episode to episode is part of the fun of the series. But it's not yeah. necessarily what makes Liv, you know, who Liv is. I think that's so hard to extract, right? Because part of what makes Liv such an interesting character is her willingness to do that and grow from it and accept the messiness of kind of being someone else and having someone else's feelings and the occasional carnage that that leaves in her life behind her as she like, you know, has a very sexually adventurous character at like person that she's eaten. And then she goes after her ex-boyfriend or she has a very cold person that she's eaten. And then she's cruel to the people around her. Like the fact that she can weather that is what I think makes her such an interesting character, especially because we see a few glimpses across the series of the fact that who she was before being a zombie was a very like, controlled person and a very orderly person and so Liv's ability to deal with all kinds of messiness like the morgue is a messy place literally Mm -hmm. her eating habits are messy literally but also this like emotional psychological relational messiness of engaging with these other people's lives and personalities is what I think is so fascinating about her because it's so much risk. It's so much vulnerability that she takes on over and over and over again. And so I don't know if you can extract it. Like, yes, it's a fun plot device, but it's so central to who she has become too. I think earlier on you said, you know, then over the pilot episode you start to see the old live i don't think that's true i don't think we see other than before the credits the pre-zombie live at all i think who she becomes that's beyond you know mm. just being down in the dumps in the first episode is an entirely different person because she can't have neatness anymore and she has to figure out right. like who she is underneath that no I, th- I think that's fair i think what i was saying some of the old live it was more about rebuilding some of those relationships that she had before that are completely mm-hmm. fractured when we jump ahead five months and we do see her start to repair some uh and, and it's fits and starts and sometimes the brid- bridges get burnt right after they're built um <laughs> that's the nature of serialized storytelling uh but that, that's what i was getting at but i think you're right in saying that the the person is 
evolving and not uh, returning to that pre-zombie live. It's it's an evolution that's happening. I think we can identify that there is a core. Um, there's some ethics that are present in Liv that as we see example after example of other people who get zombified, she found a way to kind of find the most moral version of being a zombie. And the irony of being a zombie in this, in this version of zombie dumb is that, you know, eating brains is what makes you feel more like yourself and more human. And therefore you feel awful about eating brains, the more you do it. Um, (laughs) And yet we see so many examples of people who take the urge to eat brains and use it as an excuse to become horrible people, uh, to monetize it in various ways, uh, to get revenge. You know, that's what so many other people do. But Liv had this center about her that makes what the urges that she has abhorrent. And those she has to... Um, in order to not cross the line that she doesn't want to, she has to find a way to be able to eat brains in the most ethical way possible. And that's what she, you know, what she is able to do in shifting her career to working in the morgue. And I think that that's, so we talked a lot about how she's, how she gets changed by the brains, but to your point, I think it's incredibly important that she has a very strong core that becomes clearer and clearer as you go on. And part of it's the ethicalness, but the other part is like, the purposefulness, the need for a purpose, because until the implication is she's been working in the morgue all this time, not hurting people and getting fed, but it isn't until she helps solve this case that you see her kind of able to try and rebuild her relationships again. The idea that she can turn this not just to something where she does no harm, but something that gives her purpose in the world again. Mm-hmm is so central to her in this episode and then in like every subsequent episode no matter how transformed she is by a brain a few things are consistent that she wants to solve the case that she wants to make this positive contribution that she loves the people that she loves and even in the most extreme brain situations there's an episode where she eats a sociopath and she can't feel anything she's still aware of that she's still aware of the desire to do the right thing the desire to make this situation purposeful and the the importance of the certain like the few people who are really central in her life never goes away no matter how transformed she is and i think that's really important to be able to identify with her as a character and not just like as a blank slate yeah and i like what you said about um for those five months it seems like her version of doing no harm is to kind of omit herself from life <laughs> to like remove herself and kind of maintain a very low grade existence. And the shift that we're going to see is her becoming, you know, an agent of good and to have, you know, this kind of serves as a call to action. Now she has a mission um, in, in which she's going to be trying to transform the world for a better place. And it is going to be layered from episode to episode. Are we dealing with her and making the world a better place by, solving one murder or is it going to be making the world a better place by helping to end the zombie apocalypse that so many people don't realize is right on their doorstep. Yeah. And see, this is, I, I so trying to avoid giving away the big spoilers, but also the question like, what would a zombie apocalypse actually mean? Because it clearly doesn't have to mean rambling hordes of zombies. We get that established pretty early on that if fed in an ethical way, zombies could be no better or worse than they were as humans. Yeah. Um, so what does it mean to avert zombie apocalypse becomes more about humanity, I think, for her than about zombies, which is really interesting for a zombie text. Yes, because there is the idea that gets presented several times about like people. Some of the worst monsters are humans who treat the zombies as science experiments, um, not the zombies themselves. And the worst zombies we're mostly like terrible humans. Yes. So Blaine, who is like our consistent antagonist is a terrible zombie who's exploitative and murderous and harms others for his financial and brain eating, you know, goals. But it's very clear as the season unfolds, like he was also a terrible human being and would be terrible no matter what species 
he was. So in some ways, it's like a with great power comes great responsibility kind of a question. It's not, it's pretty quickly revealed that it's not about being a zombie. It's about what being a zombie makes of you, what you make it make of you. And I think that it's interesting to me that so much of the first season and they kind of move away from it is about like live discovering who she could be not just because she's a zombie but like in general so much mm-hmm. of it is experiencing these other brains that unlock a part of herself that she hasn't allowed previously like being carefree or being creative or or sort of exploring life in a different way and so instead of zombies like limiting her life as she originally thinks so much of the first season is about how being a zombie can expand her life and i think that's one of the strengths that genre fiction can do is they can use um the broader aspects of the storytelling but you know whether it's supernatural zombie situations in this one or magic in another one or you know uh far future science tech you know in a different kind of genre show and they use those tropes to explore stories that are impossible in a more traditional, you know, reality-based uh, storyline. But in this case, you're identifying a good example of how it can they they can use those less real aspects to make a real, more real character and explore like the humanity of of a character um, through the use of really broad and oftentimes kind of dismissed tropes of genre fiction. Oh yeah, absolutely, and I think because it's kind of such an absurd premise to begin with and they they steer into that i mean her name is live more for good sake <laughs> goodness sakes like they're not trying to be subtle they can have that dimension of play in the script itself and the plot itself that allows her to try almost anything and have the series either incorporate that into the person that she becomes or discard it if it doesn't work, which is something you can't always do in a realist fictional context, right? Character evolution has to be logical in a realist fictional context. But in this fantasy scenario, she can adapt something from one character or one brain into her life going forward, or she can discard it and it doesn't really matter for continuity yeah, it's there, just kind of you've got an incontinuity reason for kind of a wild jump start of a particular characteristic where that would need to feel yeah. more naturally developed in other series um we've talked a lot about live are there any other characters in this series that really stand out to you that you want to make sure we touch on uh, i love ravi so much ravi is such <laughs> a great I was character ravi is such a great character um because he's just such got like such as weirdly boyish zest for life like he's just so into her being a zombie um and so into his experiments and it's he's like giddy in so many episodes and i think the series really needs that because clive has to be restrained and like Liv is dealing with some heavy stuff so you need that character who has like an almost childlike earnestness to him to kind of keep the audience going and upbeat and there's just something so pure about ravi even just the little details like that he always watches all these old movies in the morgue and is just makes him such a well-rounded character and just such a pleasant character to be around i think there's something that is innately appealing about a character who is like unabashedly passionate about something in this case it being that my coworker is a zombie <laughs> um but yeah. that, that they just approach it with joy and interest and i think like there's the whole like gen x like sardonic removal that is uh like like talking about rob thomas like is kind of like the veronica mars version uh, of, of a lot of characters that became very popular and kind of removes your ability to express like full commitment to anything and robbie just throws all that out the window and he is just all in as soon as he knows there's zombies i want to know everything there is to know about zombies that's it i don't i don't care like i don't want to be one (laughs) i just want to know everything that there is about it and i it, it is so fun to see on screen 
that like initial reaction. Like I still remember watching the pilot the first time. And instead of like the terror or horror that his roommate or his, uh, his coworker is eating a brain. It is just, I knew it. My suspicions are right. Zombies are real. Like, and, and like ecstatic joy about this. And it, it, it is just so pleasurable to see that portrayed on screen. And I think we need more of that. More, more people who are just passionate about their, whatever it is they're passionate about. I guess I'm going with like, when I say the pureness of Ravi is he just, is so all in and he means it and it feels really earned because he's kind of that way about everything in the series you don't get the sense of like he's obsessed with zombies so this is just yeah he's just into it because it proves him right which would make him kind of an unlikable character he's genuinely fascinated by it and in the same vein when he becomes friends with her ex major lily white he's just like all in on the bromance <laughs> he's just one of those people who when he commits he commits fully with this like this pure open heart and it's just it's just such an appealing part of the character and you're right we have so few people and it's so easy to have a character like that be cynical you know i was let go from the cdc which is the the whole reason he's in a morgue this brilliant doctor's in a morgue and i'm want to prove to everyone I was right. And there's just none of that in Robbie. Like he just wants to know to know, and he just wants to help live because she's live. Uh And so that, that lack of cynicism and resentment is just so incredibly refreshing. And I think in creative writing, there is an urge to like lean into tragic backstories and like make everything as darkly motivated. Like if you've ever seen any of the, uh, the, the the procedurals that come out of like northern europe it's like they're all like <laughs> how tortured can we make our protagonist who is like barely existing to punish someone else a little bit more than they feel they've been punished by life and that's it you know and uh and, and, and that's a different kind of like negativity than some of the sardonic cynicism that i was identifying as like the gen x uh trope but I love this like counterpunch to it. Uh, and, and in a world of zombies and so much death and morbidity that's around it, I think we do need that like burst of just, uh, like you said, fully committed joy that comes from Robbie. I think most of the characters have it, have, like reject that sort of dark procedural in their own ways. I love that like Liv is dead, but genuinely her biggest problem for the first season is that she's still in love with her ex-fiance. Mm-hmm. And like, yes, that's very soapy and very CW, but I think it's also really useful to avoid this like deep morass of the mourning of the dead girl, because almost immediately it's like, I'm dead and that sucks, but really I miss egg salad and my boyfriend and that's going to take precedence over the fact that my heart no longer beats. Right. Um, any other characters that you want to make sure we touch on before we wrap up this discussion? I kind of feel like we should talk about Blaine, but I also hate talking about Blaine. <laughs> he is so <laughs> evil. Like... <laughs> He's... I feel like evil's almost elevating him beyond what he deserves, right? Like, evil seems like it should have a greater purpose. And Blaine is just so petty. Right. It's like and base it's like desires, he creates, right? It's just yeah, like, he creates great evil, but pretty much just because he has like the self control of an app. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 like uh, and David Anders does a great job of playing creepy characters like this. Um, oh, yeah. it, I, I remember his villainous turn in in Alias as well. Like, it's one of the first things that, that gets him noticed. So it's just something about uh, how he's able to perform, I think, resonates with, like, oh, you're just the worst. <laughs> it's kind of like you're feeling every time he's on screen. Like, oh, man, you again? <laughs> and he's great at it. I mean, he's, he's a, I think he's a great antagonist because he doesn't quite raise level to pure evil because mm-hmm. you just kind of have the sense of, like, oh my god, like, this guy just needs a really good therapist and <laughs> a nice hobby right. or something, and we'll be fine. Like, and, and I think, I like that they avoid, so typically in, like, these kinds of genres, you keep on waiting for his redemption, like, it's gonna be, oh, Blaine has daddy issues, which is definitely part of the character. <laughs> Blaine has this, Blaine has this, we're gonna, we're gonna redeem him the way that 
in so many CW shows, the sort of like spoiled shitty character gets redeemed. And they're just like, no, like he has a hundred chances to be redeemed, but he's just, just so narcissistic Mm -hmm. and so pedally venal that they can never get, he can never get past it. He can never grow, which is such an important counterpoint to live who is nothing but growth. Right, and, and like, they, are, at least in terms of, like, their initial starting points, well, I mean, we find out he was the drug dealer, uh, but, but like, they both get zombified at the same time, and then they go into such different paths uh, once they have this new status quo in, in who they are. And his, as you said, is, is like, so petty, but also so entrepreneurial, what what he's going to go after uh, in, in terms of, like, dealing brains to zombies, but then also, like, deliberately turning people into zombies who he know will be able to pay him a top dollar for brains but then uh, one one part of that that i quite like that they develop is that because you get the memories and the personalities of the people you eat they he needs to start finding higher end brains like people who have lived better lives and had like more amazing experiences uh to satisfy uh some of the zombies um and and people are willing to pay top dollar for you know the astronaut brain (laughs) because they want to know curated brain yes the I've been trying to talk about the late seasons because I don't want to ruin things, but there is a point in the late season where there's an actual like menu of different brains. And there's a discussion of like, well, what do we think this part, this person's job had been in Cirque du Soleil? (laughs) What if they were a mime? And that's just a source of such great comedy. But I think what's interesting is like Blaine eats brains, but he never seems to transform to the extent that Liv does. Like they'll refer to the fact that he's on this kind of brain and it'll give him like a tiny bit of a tick, but the extent to which like Liv is able to inhabit a brain, we never really see in like a substantive way. Yeah. I'm not through the whole series, but that definitely does stand out what you're describing from what I've seen so far. He's such a narcissist that even the power of zombie visions don't really make a dent in like his core blameness, which has two modes, like fake superficial charm based around like, Oh really? I'm innocent. And his kind of like imperiousness. And that's all blame. Uh, even with zombies, that's really all Blaine is capable of. All right. Well, before we fully wrap up this episode, do you have any final thoughts about the iZombie TV show? I want to say gone too soon, but not really. It it was a really excellent show, but I think it lived the course that it should have lived, Mm -hmm. just like live. I think it starts really strong because of the procedural format. And then for those of you who choose to watch all the way to the end, it slowly moves further away from the procedural and more into kind of the modern serial. The mythology of the show, thwart, right? Yeah, how do we thwart the zombie apocalypse? Um, which I think it was strongest when it was playful. I think it was strongest when they were kind of like still discovering what it could be and who she who she could be before they kind of really committed to the adventure storyline, the action storyline. But I think it was such a unique show for its moment. You don't get that kind of flexibility with the main character typically and the resistance to making zombies scary i think was so important because it would be so easy even if you made live heroic to make zombies in general scary and they don't go there very often at all they're really consistently trying to make them as sympathetic as their human selves would have been or as horrible as their human selves would have been. And that sense of compassion, I think is what's missing from a lot of television today. A show that's like really fundamentally about compassion and empathy to go back to my original point. I think we get so little of that Mm -hmm. in programs and it was a really unique way to do it by going for a genre that is so typically about fear yeah well both genres like there is definitely a you know the the fear of crime is a driving force (laughs) the procedural um and then the the fear in the in the zombie uh genre and so you're putting those together but you are finding like something that is so rooted in empathy and that, that ability to like see the other and try and like 
really think about the world through their point of view is obviously something that is not maybe a strong point in American culture in 2020. Um, <laughs> and it, Just a little. Yeah. It gets modeled in a very unexpected place, I think, in this show. Um, and yeah. uh, the show, I think, successfully walks a lot of different um, tightropes, you know, simultaneously in, like, keeping uh, the acknowledging their horror roots uh acknowledging all the the expected format for a procedural but then giving us some really interesting characters along the way and i haven't seen like i said the whole series to see how well it sticks the landing if it shifts as it shifts more towards like the mythology of the show itself rather than the week-to-week procedural um but i have enjoyed what i've watched so far and uh if, if that sounds like something that's up your alley and at least give you know the first season um a, a sample and and see kind of how this unexpected mishmash of genres leads to something that as, as uh, you've identified, like one of the core themes of it is actually empathy. And I don't think that's what you go in expecting when you see uh crime stopping zombie as like the, the quick elevator pitch of a show. Yeah. It's really an underrated gem of a show. And I would just say it's funny. Like, I don't think we've talked enough about the fact that it's funny. It's really really funny like i've been all ponderous about what can we get from having these different characters but like one of the things we can get from her taking all these different characteristics is just a lot of great opportunities for humor when all of a sudden our like semi-uptight Liv becomes an agoraphobic who's obsessed with video games and cheetos and (laughs) they can just like milk that moment for all the humor that's possibly worth and they're it's a really funny series too which i don't think we've given it a lot of credit for in this podcast i totally agree with the humor i do want to acknowledge though that it does make you wonder about clive babineau's detective skills when (laughs) his partner becomes a different person every week and he just kind of shrugs it off constantly like like with uh ravi you've got the he knows exactly what's going on and there's a lot of other people but clive babineau who i love the name clive babineau and i really like malcolm goodwin's uh performance but as a character who exists in this world week to week he maybe uh they didn't give enough reason for him to not become suspicious of what's going on around him they do make sure that he mentions it a lot like they do make sure he has a lot of comments about like what is with you like why are you behaving this way so like i like to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that like he's well aware but just assumes that she is erratic a little erratic or um, that like the visions do it to her or just that he's like, cause we do get the sense of the setup that he really needs to close cases. And it's very clear that she does most of the closing of the cases. <laughs> so there might also just be like a willful ignoring of the thing we don't want to know right. from Clive, but they do make sure that like he at least notices it occasionally. <laughs> Otherwise, but he never digs into it to try and really, <laughs> yeah, he never digs into it, which is where I'm going with. I think that like maybe there's willful ignorance <laughs> as opposed to just incompetence. All right. Well, Kira, as a first-time guest, you get our dinner guest question. Because this is a show about great characters and great stories, we'd like to ask if you could have a dinner party with any handful of uh, fictional characters, who would you want to hang out with for an evening? Okay, so this is going to be, we mentioned this before, it's going to be a hard right turn for my zombie because most of these are classic film characters. So I'm thinking the group that I would have a dinner party with would be Pete Peters from Shall We Dance, which is this um, like classic ballet dancer who pretends to be a Russian named Petrov and has very good banter. Most of my dinner parties are based on banter. Nora from The Thin Man, Mm -hmm. again, banter potential, but also because like she would see through Petrov immediately. And I think that would be entertaining. Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing. Because banter. I think... What? The queen of banter. banter. <laughs> right. But also very much because you need somebody who would find Petrov appealing in a way that she would hate just enough to get like, you know, some sparks flying. And Rodrigo from Mozart in the Jungle, not just because of banter, because banter is not the best, but because of the fact that he's very smart, very clever, could keep up with them. And his like abiding love for music would give him and Petrov something to talk about 
other than like witty banter and repartee because Petrov also loves music and rhythm and dance. So we have an interesting conversation that was not just outwitting like, who, one who another. Who can one up the not, uh, last one liner? Yeah. But it would be a very fun party to watch <laughs> as long as I wasn't asked to participate because I am definitely not clever enough for any of that. <laughs> you know, it's hanging in the background, I'm, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not that witty in parties. It would definitely be a, wa- a fly in the wall type scenario. I feel like my best like one-liners come to me far too late. <laughs> the- I have to be, my good one-liners require me to be like really, really mad. So you definitely don't want them to happen at a party. Well, thank you, Kara, for joining us for this discussion. And thank you, listeners, for downloading. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 40, when we talked about Sally Sparrow from the Blink episode of Doctor Who, or episode number 59, when we talked about Veronica Mars, or number 94, when we talked about Stranger Things. If you throw all those together, you're getting a pretty good mishmash that is similar in tone <laughs> to iZombie. Uh, you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at datarowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Dismimic. Our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. going and we'll see how far we can go before we have to give andrew an edit point uh okay. in this the goal is zero edit points in 300 <laughs> and well this is our 306th episode i don't know that we've ever hit that <laughs> i was gonna say that's that's a lot to ask for yeah <laughs>